This is Father Gregory Pine. And this is Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And welcome to Godsplaining. Thanks to all of those who support us. If you enjoy the show, please consider making a monthly donation on Patreon. Be sure to like and subscribe to Godsplaining wherever you listen to your podcasts. Father Jacob Bertrand, uh, I feel like hmm. this is the first episode that we have recorded in some time, which means like mm. three weeks. Uh, but since that last episode that we recorded, um, let's see, we've celebrated Holy Week and the Easter Triduum. Uh, yes. How was your yes. uh, How was your Holy Week? How are you doing? Holy, yeah, it was holy. It was a week long, <laughs> so it was great. Very holy. Yeah, it was good. I was here at Thousand Studies, um, which was nice. It's kind of like liturgy overload in in a good way. So, um, yeah, it's beautiful. A lot of beautiful traditions coming from like Dominican stuff, and then just regular not stuff, but like Dominican liturgy, and and obviously the sort of the regular sort of liturgy. So. It's, it was beautiful. It was good, fun to celebrate um, on Easter Sunday and and the like. So, yeah, bless. Can't complain. I should say this has nothing to do with Easter, but this is the third, for for those keeping track at home, um, the last couple of episodes I've recorded were with Father Bonaventure and Father Patrick. And each time we started, it was the same kind of comment, like, we haven't recorded with one another for a long time. <laughs> and so now I'm thinking, like, who have I been recording with? Because everybody's mm. saying the same. But, alas, here we are. How was your... How was Easter and um, I was going to say your Easter as if that like you had a different one, but how, yeah. how was it? That was good. Um, let's see. Yep. It was like yours, except different. And um, it was the first time that I did the washing of the feet. I think it was the first time that I've ever celebrated the Holy Thursday liturgy. I mean, I've con celebrated before, but I haven't been the principal celebrant. And it was nice because I'm the youngest priest in the community and the oldest priest is a friar who's... Uh, Swiss. He's 85 years old, Father Adrian. And so I celebrated and he preached, uh, which was cool. And um, I tried to offer to the prior the, you know, like the foot washing section of the liturgy, because I don't know, it's just, it's a Dominican custom that the prior would do that. But he's like, nah, he's like, you are acting in persona Christi in a peculiar way for the liturgy itself. So you should do the feet washing. I was like, okie dokie. So it was wild. Um, It was humbling. I I mean, this is just me being honest. I typically don't love the foot washing just because it, like many things in the past, however many years, has become politicized in a lot of church conversations. So I'm just like, ah, uh, what if we just omitted it and just skipped that whole argument? Uh, but the Dominican custom is to wash the feet of the, um, is to wash the feet of the, the community. And um, yeah, I was washing the feet of men with whom I live. And it was, yeah, it was humbling. It was simple. And I was like tripping over my vestments and moving from fryer to fryer. And it was a kind of dumpster fire insofar as I was the one who was presiding and I lack your Ars Celebrandi. Uh, but I, I very much appreciated the opportunity to just do something simple in service because I can be a brat. And so it's good to, to mortify one's tendency to be a brat. Um, yeah. And then cool. now in the Easter octave, a uh, cool thing is uh, that book that I've been talking about for like way too long uh, that I wrote about prudence. Um, it's like, oh, I wrote a book about prudence and people are like, oh, cool, cool. When it's coming out. And I'm like, oh, I have no idea. But I finally do because it is out. It's like when people ask, are you called to the priesthood? I'm like, pretty sure leading up to ordination. And I'm like, yeah, now I think I'm definitely sure. So I wrote a book and I'm definitely sure because it's available. So it's called Prudence Choose Confidently. Uh, live boldly and it's available wherever books are sold and um, yeah and at least one person in the world likes it because I do so that for me is a great consolation even if an egotistical one 
<laughs> when you said the subtitle choose confidently right was that it prudence yeah right yeah i thought you said it first well i know the title of the book because i've seen it and i have a copy but i thought you said it sounded like you said juice confidently like it was a workout <laughs> book prudence juice confidently <laughs> yeah it's about but working ever... out and making fresh smoothies mm, love it love both of them so if yeah. you're interested in working out and smoothies this is the book for you also if you're interested in reading something father gregory wrote this is the book for you and if you're interested in learning about prudence and like decision making and the like this is the book for you so there's really not a reason not to buy it because okay. either work out drink smoothies you want to hear more from father gregory yikes or you want to <laughs> learn about a virtue good those yeah. are the reasons it just covers so, such a wide customer base yep it's great and it's like 18 point font and like four pages long so you'll love it it's really accessible <laughs> it's like a pamphlet let's be honest um dig so yeah so that's cool um but here in this episode we're going to talk not so much about prudence as we are about love which is a virtue but it's also a reality which embraces more of our human lives lives <laughs> sweet christmas lord teach me how to speak amen hallelujah um it, it embraces more of our human lives insofar as it kind of makes our lives whole, it makes our lives orderly. So we're going to dive into that subject. Um, all right. So Father Jacob Bertrand, would you set the stage for us? What is maybe a little bit of uh, an introduction to the present crisis of love or the present difficulty that we experience in trying to order our lives well in a way that reflects the love of God for us and the love that we ought to bear out to others? Yeah, I think, it, again, yet perhaps a tired trope of like, well, you can look at the world and see how wrong things are. But I, there is a lot to, I guess, to say or different ways to talk about love and our capacity for it and our expression of it, like how how we're made to love and how humans ought to love well. And then also the corollary of like how that goes wrong or wrongly. Um, so, but yeah, for because our episodes are only so long and people only care so much to listen to us, one of the things, like an angle or, or a way by which I think it's worth, something I think that is worth talking about is this idea of like, what is the end of human love? And how does how do we pursue that? And I think that can be highlighted perhaps by a couple examples that are um, prevalent in some some, I guess, minds of, of the world of the secular world, and also the Christian world. And I guess, um, that's, that's sort of like, what would I say, let's use two examples, right? So this, somebody proposed to me, uh, this idea, not to me, it's, I mean, I guess it was to me, but it's a, it wasn't just a one-off proposal, but this idea of like, well, why can't Catholics have civil unions? Like, isn't there, why can't Catholics have civil unions so as to, um, what, for those who perhaps are, you know, living the church's teaching, uh, teachings on sexuality, but might be, you know, same-sex attracted, why can't they enjoy um, a friendship um, that is, but that also kind of enjoys the, the civil benefits uh, that society provides people who spend their lives together. Like, why is that only reserved to married people? And why can't even people who don't experience same-sex attraction, like why can't friends who, you know, are going to be single have these sort of benefits? So this idea of like Catholic civil unions, is, is that a wrong thing? Is that a bad thing? How does that uh, kind of like, I don't know, stand contrary? Or does that stand contrary to 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 what we understand human love to be and human relationships to be. Um, so that perhaps I don't know if that fleshes out the problem enough, but at least a place to start um, to start thinking about like, well, what does yeah, what does proper human love look like? What is the end of that? And 
if if we understand the end, then how do we kind of approach and and kind of strive towards that? So that's kind of what we're what we're looking to talk about and kind of set up. Yeah, and I think a lot of the rhetoric in contemporary debates is not thinking in terms of there being an end to love. So like a fancy word that we use in philosophical conversation is teleological. So there's an end, and then we can observe a kind of tendency to the end, and that tendency shapes our discourse and it shapes our reality. But I think a lot of what we you know hear uh, in the secular world or as it's presented by the media is, is anti-teleological or non-teleological. So like love is love or love wins. Doesn't answer the question like, okay, well, what is love for or win what battle? It's just a kind of general affirmation or a kind of unconditional positive regard, but it doesn't necessarily think of, you know, what the person is for and how the person ought to attain to that end. And one of your insights, you know, just talking about this before, is that if we're going to know the end, or if we're going to work effectively for the end, then we need to know who we are, because, you know, the principle at stake here is a nature. And sometimes you hear people talk about human nature. And, and nature is a principle both of being and of unfolding. It sets the terms for what this thing is. And when you know what this thing is, then you have a better sense of what it's for. So like when you know what a hammer is for, then you're better suited to use it as such. But if you don't know what it's for, then you might like, I don't know, stir your soup or scrape plaque off your teeth, all of which or both of which would be super destructive. So when getting at the identity so as to get at the unfolding of the human person, what are some basic things that we want to have in place, basic principles? Yeah, I think at least three um, that we can enumerate and, and talk about briefly with respect to human sexuality, um, because we have to talk about the human, all right, before we can talk about the end of what our love is, we, as Father Gregory was saying, we have to understand at least briefly what the person is and how our sexuality is part of our humanity. And then once we have that, we can talk about, okay, well, understanding that sexuality is part of humanity, what does our human sexuality move towards this end that Father Gregory is talking about? So First thing I think is super important and something that, that a lot we often get wrong is this ideal idea of wholeness or like an in, integrity to the person, right? That whenever we're considering uh, a, a human being or a specific like phenomenon or something that a human being does, um, it has to be and can only be properly understood with reference to the person as a whole. Um, so when we think about like, uh, by way of example, when we think about human love and loving and human sexuality, it doesn't, we can talk about it in a sort of vacuum. We can talk about like, well, what is sexuality and how is it lived well? But we have to do that with reference to the person as a whole. And what I mean by that is that we are not simply sexual beings. Um, it's part of who we are and part and, and the part of, and, and that part of us contributes to the wholeness of us and in similar ways like exercise right like a human being is not simply somebody who can exercise and get stronger and read father gregory's book prudence juice what was it what's the um yeah his, his book juice on confidently juicing. and well, live boldly. juice confidently right yeah like there are things that we do as as human beings but they contribute to the whole of us we can't divorce part of what we do from uh from other parts of what we do we're a whole integrated being and what we do with and in our sexuality um, redounds to the person. Um, so that's, that's one thing um, that at least by way of, of starting that it's we, we can't simply atomize our lives into discrete kind of parts and say that these don't affect who we are or how we do other things or, or this or that sort of thing. I don't know if that makes sense, but we'll at least start there. Um, the, the second thing is, is what we call in like philosophical 
or theological terms that human beings are hylomorphic um, two forms. I don't know if I agree if you want to say a bit about that. Um, yeah, yeah sure. but that it, it relates to the first for sure. Yeah. So hylomorphic just meaning or whatever it comes from two Greek words, which mean matter and form. So the matter is the kind of stuff. And then the form is what gives the stuff its shape or what makes the stuff to be this kind of stuff. So um, the form or, you know, like what, what gives shape to the human person is the soul. And then, then the matter would be like the body. Um, but it's made to be a human body by the human soul. So the two taken together make up the human person. The human person we sometimes refer to as a composite of matter and soul or of body and soul uh, or matter and form and body and soul. So there's a sense in which like our bodies kind of bear out our souls. Ludwig Wittgenstein, that's more difficult to say than I originally thought. Um, he says that, you know, like you want to take a good picture of the soul, the best picture of the, excuse me. Yeah. You want to take a good picture of the soul. The best picture of the soul is the body because the body is, you know, like what the material world looks like when shaped by the soul. So, um, yeah, when you, when you get at it from this angle, you have a better appreciation of the integrity of the human person, like Father Jacob Bertrand had mentioned, um, but also of this interplay between body and soul, that they're not just set next to each other or on top of each other, but that they are in intimate union and that their intimate union shapes both and that we as a human person bear that out, uh, which kind of leads into the third and final point that you had introduced. Yeah. Um, yeah. The third point is, as we've already been talking about, that the person, us as human beings, are ordered to an end. We're made for something. Ultimately, that something is is union with God. As you know, that's the highest good. That's the highest end. St. Thomas introduces the idea of this end in terms of happiness, that we're made for happiness, fulfillment, ultimately, you know, perfect happiness and fulfillment in God. There are lower goods, great goods, but lower goods. You know, we can, here we're talking about love, one of the great goods of being a human person. Um, it's ordered to God in the end. But this this is where I guess the, the rubber hits the road in this conversation, because if the person is a whole, right, we can't atomize our different actions in ways that make them discrete and unrelated because we're one human being as a person. And if we're body and soul, matter and form, um, what we do in our with our bodies affects our souls and as as a body soul composite moving towards god um that that affects our end you know what we're aimed at so our sexuality certainly is a bodily thing you know sexual differentiation is a material thing it's it's a bodily thing but because we are hylomorphic and whole um, also, the, the beauty of human love is that it encompasses or it involves intimately and um, our, the, the, the reality of our souls that like love constitutes is not just a physical thing, but something that involves our intellect and our will, our ability to know and to love. Um, and, and all of that is ordered towards happiness and fulfillment. So we have these three things, these three sort of foundational points that like the human person is whole, the human person is body and soul, and that this body soul whole composite is ordered to work together, to move together by grace, to share in divine life and happiness. And we can have a sort of foretaste of that in our relationships, um, most especially in our, in, in not our, I don't have any romantic relationships, but in romantic relationships and in the love shared between, uh, between two human beings between uh, man and woman. And this is sort of the next point, right, that we're going to talk about is that that 
human sexuality is fulfilled in these things being the case human sexuality is fulfilled in or sort of the height of that is is in the married state well why um the reason for that is as i when i talk about marriage and like human love being fulfilled by this i always return to the code of canon law because i think their definition of marriage is is like is really solid and and the line that i really like there is that the, the definition the matrimony or the marriage covenant by which a man and a woman establish between themselves a partnership of the whole of life and which is uh, and which is ordered by its nature right so what it's aimed at to the good of the spouse's holiness and the procreation and education of offspring um, right so the matrimony covenant by which a man and woman establish between themselves a partnership of the whole of life like here's this idea of wholeness again that it's it's within the context of the sacramental bond of marriage um, that we, that, that this wholeness of life is shared. Um, so I don't know, Father Gregory, how this, I guess, relate, this relates back to this sort of idea of like the person being a whole ordered toward an end. Um, but how does this kind of come alive then in our idea of like, how do, how do we love well and like move towards that end? Yeah, I think, um, maybe a good principle to introduce at this point is one of order. Um, so I'm thinking, you know, we, we introduced the notion of nature and we said that nature is a principle of being and of unfolding. So it sets the terms for what we are and it also sets the terms for how we are to flourish. And nature is the basis of the natural law, which a lot of people have heard bandied about, but not necessarily heard described. And the natural law basically says that, you know, because we're human beings, because we partake of the life of reason, but we do so in an embodied way and certain goods are going to present themselves to us because those goods build up who we are and help us attain to our perfection. And so we experience our relationship like with these goods as a kind of inclination or attraction or desire, not necessarily at a conscious level, but in a very profoundly human level. But we don't just follow all of our desires simultaneously because those desires have to be ordered in light of, you saw it coming, the end. So like, for instance, on account of the fact that we exist, that we're substances, we have a desire to, or an inclination to keep existing. So things that are in being like to stay in being because it's in their best interest to be because there's no future without being. And so in light of this fact, we're inclined to eat and to drink and to procreate because by doing so, we you know, maintain our own individual existence, but also propagate the existence of the species. But then those desires are actually called up into higher order desires because we're animals, right? We have a tendency not only just like to procreate like indiscriminately, but to procreate in the context of a kind of family or tribe or whatever clan, however you describe them, a gaggle, a pride. Uh, what do you call a ravens? Ravens are in murders, I think is the name of a group of ravens. Whatever. Okay, keep going. Um, but um, that desire is called up into this higher desire to, you know, like procreate and educate children, right? To kind of introduce them into a society of a certain sort. And then on account of the fact that we're rational, we have a desire to know the truth about God and to live well in the context of political life and social life and family life. Um, but to do so with the idea of kind of establishing a certain peace or tranquility to enjoy the fruits of the earth or the goods of the earth yet more excellently. So we've got all these different tendencies or inclinations or desires at work in our life, but we need them to be ordered. And when you say something concretely like, human love is for marriage, it places itself within that, you know, whatever maelstrom of desires in an orderly fashion. So it's not just about eating and drinking and having sexual intercourse and procreating and educating. It's to do so in the context 
of like a family unit, which contributes to or participates in the life of the state, which ultimately is ordered to the acknowledgement and to the worship of God. So I think that when we see it in that context, like there is a natural law at work in our members, that that law is worked out in order specifically, you know, by the cultivation of virtues, among which virtues there is love or charity, uh, that we flourish, right, by, by placing a certain order in and among these desires and seeing them through to their genuine term. Um, so maybe with that, then I can just uh, bounce it back to you to think about some of the issues that it, like with these things in mind, certain issues that we can think through more effectively or think through more efficiently in light of the distinctions that we've drawn. Yeah, I think with, with in this sort of question of like, can there be Catholic civil unions? Like, is that an appropriate place for people, even if, you know, to live in a way, even if it were sort of chaste, to live in a way um, that kind of approximates marriage and its form as a civil union? Or can there be such things as like um, exclusive, chaste, same-sex relationships where two people who are, um, who identify perhaps as as gay or same-sex attracted spend their lives together um, in a way that sort of approximates uh, like marital fidelity, but without the sort of sexual component, you know, living chastely? Like, are those things legitimate? Are those legitimate ways uh, to uh, approach the end that we've been talking about, about our humanity uh, and our human sexuality? The answer to those to those questions has to be sort of no. Well, well, why? Well, because of what we've been talking about. But here are some sort of like inherent issues, as Father Gregory was saying, in, in this sort of question, at least how I've framed it and proposed it. And, and one of these is, is that in order to sort of enter into um, a, whether that's like the Catholic quote unquote civil union or a chaste same sex relationship, it, it's dependent on defining oneself based on sexual preference. Uh, but, you know, but in reality, what defines a person is not sexual orientation or sexual desires, or even the capacity to like have sex or procreate or these sort of things. What's definitive of the person is our capacity for to know and to love and our ability to, to give, to give of ourselves. Um, these are the defining sort of characteristics uh, of like the essence of who we are as men and women. Um, and our sexuality is included in that, but it's not determinative of that. It's not the, the final sort of um, defining characteristic of who we are as human persons. So this might be a sort of, I don't know, a more kind of like uh, nuanced, I don't know if nuance is the right word, but maybe not a kind of frontline kind of argument to make, but is an important one that remember, like, as a human person, we are, we're whole, you know, we can't be defined and we shouldn't be defined by, by this or that part of who we are without regard for the, for who we are as an integrated human being. Um, so with respect to our sexuality, it can't be a defining factor of who we are because we're more than that. And, um, and in the end, our sexuality, sexuality is for more than, um, simply like the rights of us enjoyed in a civil union or these sort of things. It's ultimately, uh, our sexuality is ultimately or oriented and when healed and transformed by grace to our, to holiness, to be made holy. Um, and, and as father Gregory was explaining, you know, with these ends in mind that there's, there's a particular sort of way by which men and women, um, are made holy and living their sexuality well and, and, and fully. So, um, I don't know, I don't know if you have, addendums or additions to that, Father Gregory? Yeah, maybe just to 
at make make addition or spell it out further or just wax ineloquent for some number of minutes, which is my usual won't. Um, but yeah, I think that, like you said, you set it up. We're, we're made to the image of God. So our destiny, our dignity is to know and to love God with our whole mind, heart, soul, and strength and our neighbor is ourself. And God, uh, in his predestinating love, uh, calls us to certain concrete expressions of that love. So we all have the same vocation insofar as we're all called to a kind of covenant love with God in heaven, but it's not it's not a vocation to which we attain um, like solipsistically or individualistically. It's one that we attain to in communion because God who is communion calls us to communion through communion. All right. And so he calls certain persons to certain states of life, you know, to priesthood, to religious life or to marriage. And then for whatever reason, some people do not enter into a state of life, but that doesn't mean that they don't have a vocation because their vocation is to the vision of God in heaven, as we have described. So then we think about, you know, these different means, as it were, these different states of life, which participate that one vocation and so are rightly called vocations in those terms, right? Therefore, the knowledge and love of God. And so we're receptive to God's revelation of himself and to the grace that he gives. And like you said, when somebody defines themselves or him or herself by sexual orientation and then crafts um, a kind of response in light of that, which kind of steps outside or steps, you know, kind of like parallel to the tradition, it's yeah it, it it can represent a kind of break from the general tendency or the the kind of overall tendency to receive from god a revelation of himself and then a grace to respond in a way to which he calls right so i think that there underneath there's a kind of anxiety that maybe i don't have a vocation as a result of which maybe i am ill-made and that's not the point the point is we're all called to the vocation like you said of knowing and loving god to the utmost extent to do so perfectly um, and that these different means are disposed or they're kind of, um, yeah, made available to us towards that end. But ultimately, it, it, it doesn't mean reshaping the notion of marriage, which itself is revealed and kind of refurbished by our Lord Jesus Christ, appealing back to Genesis 2 and the revelation of the Old Testament and saying like, no, 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 this is a real thing. And just because we find it difficult doesn't mean that we change it. Or just because we have particular struggles with chastity, which make it impossible for us to enter into this marital union. Again, it doesn't mean that we change it. So I think there's a kind of contemplative disposition which informs all of our thoughts and actions vis-a-vis -vis marriage, which is namely that, that God reveals himself, calls us to himself, and then reveals the means and calls us through those means. Um, and marriage is about procreation and education of children and the mutual support of the spouses. So you can only undertake it with those things in mind, mind you. There are a lot of asterisks, um, and that's a, that's a whole other episode. Uh, like, what about people who are aged and as a result of which can't procreate? Okay, that's another question, but it's a good one. Um, so I think that that kind of helps to shape our thoughts about how we approach the question of our vocation, the state of life to which we may be called, you know, or, or may have already embarked upon or may yet be to embark upon, and then how we go about loving in and through those things. So, yeah, no, I think that the, the distinctions that you drew at the outset set it up well. And then at that point, we're in a better place to receive from the Lord what it is that he has to reveal. Um, but as we draw down, I don't know if you have final things that you want to suss out, final things that you want to concretize. Yeah, I think that I think often we and this is not just with chastity or sexuality, but with a lot of um, a lot of vices in that we that we have that the idea that the idea is that like, uh, what accomplishment in the Christian life is just to sort of like, have control over our over things in our lives such that we are not like such that we're simply not sinning but like that we're going to that 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 we're going to fight these things for the rest of our life and with our with, there's a whole host of ways that we can talk about that with respect to our 
to human sexuality. Um, but ultimately, we we shouldn't look at like the pursuit of virtue and goodness and holiness as a simple like I'm like struggle. There's a struggle to get there, but the struggle is not the end. The end is a sort of is a perfection and a freedom in grace, and that includes our our sexuality. And it's important to recognize that human sexuality is is um, because the human person is whole is a whole thing, um, not a compartmentalized, atomized thing. Our human sexuality, when lived well and when lived, you know, aided by grace, actually contributes to our holiness. You know, it makes us holy. It makes us saints. When a, when a married couple engages in the conjugal act, when they have sex, that contributes to their holiness. You know, when, when unmarried people remain, it, 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 pursue chastity and these things, that contributes to their holiness. When those who have taken vows are ordained priests are celibate, um, that contributes to their holiness. So, um, the, which ultimately is, is the end, which is the end for all of us to be holy, not to, you know, not to simply struggle. That's often part of all of our experience, but to be holy. And we have to view our sexuality, which is part of our humanity uh, as something that contributes or is, was made to contribute to that holiness. I think when we begin to see our lives in those sort of terms um, and our sexuality and our ability to love other people in those terms, uh, it begins to make more sense as to why, like, okay, there's a proper way or proper modes of expressing our human sexuality that actually are conducive to our growth and, and holiness and our pursuit of Christ. So I, that for me has always been a helpful thing to remember that it's not, it's ultimately about our, our union, union with Christ and that the whole of our, of, of who we are as human beings is, is made for that, not just not just our minds, not just our hearts, but like our, everything that we are is, is made for that. Yeah. And then maybe just by way of final thought for me, it's, and that doesn't, it's not to make light of the unique uh, and individual sufferings that each human person experiences as a result of the way in which, you know, they are fearfully and wonderfully made and the way in which they may have been formed or deformed uh, to their delight or to their chagrin because God has foreseen it all, right? God has, you know, been about the work of executing a provident, providential plan in our lives, even if it's one that's marked by, you know, weakness and woundedness, by sin, by betrayal, whatever it might be. Um, yet we know that by his grace, it's possible to heal, it's possible to grow, and it's possible to attain to a certain perfection. That perfection will always be marked by the very real history of our lives. It's not a perfection that papers it over or a perfection that denies it outrightly. Rather, it incorporates it into a story of glory, just like our Lord's wounds become a privileged place of encounter for, uh, for us as Christians to draw from his glory. So too, the way in which the Lord brings us through, whatever, a story of, of trial and temptation, maybe a failure or you know of, of triumph, is a way in which we uh, find a privileged place of encounter with his glory in our own flesh. So I think that, you know, the struggles that people encounter with human sexuality are real. They're, they're in no wise to be denied or to be made light of. But it's, again, it's for us to receive from God what he reveals and what he gives so that we can, yeah, so that we can grow and become the saints that he desires us to be. Um, boom. All right. So with that, a word of thanks to all of our supporters. Again, if you'd like to tithe through our work, please check us out at patreon.com slash godsplaining. Uh, if you would, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review, all of which help to get the word out um, and to bring God's blending before more people's eyes and ears so that they too might hear a good word. 
Uh, visit godsplanning.org to shop merchandise and then to get updates on events. So this summer, like we've said, we have two retreats in July and one retreat in August, and you are most cordially invited. We'd love to see you there, and applications are available online at godsplanning.org. Uh, so that's it from us. We, yeah, thanks so much for your prayers for us and know of our prayers for you. We continue to celebrate the Holy Mass for you weekly and pray the rosary for you and for your intentions. And uh, yeah, until next time, we'll look forward to catching you on Godsplanning. Cheers. Cheers.